Today is Monday, the 30th of April in the year 2012, and we are in the Lower Hamlet in the Assembly of Stars Meditation Hall. We are all stars. We have talked about the spiritual body. We all have a physical body, but we also have a spiritual body of practice. We need to nourish that body for it to be strong, robust, solid. And if our spiritual body is solid enough, we're no longer afraid about where we're going. Everywhere we go, we have our spiritual body with us, and with the spiritual practice that's solid. We're no longer afraid of anything. We're not afraid of anything. We can very well overcome our difficulties with our practice. In our tradition, our practice also needs to make use of our body, not only of our mind. When we practice mindful breathing, we use our lungs, our nose, for example. So the body and the mind are together in the practice. The Sanskrit word for practice is bhavana. Bhava means existence. Something that doesn't exist but we can produce and bring into being. For example, there is no sunflower outside right now, but the farmers can sow and water seeds so that the sunflowers grow. So bhavana is translated as culture, cultivation. We cultivate something, we produce something. It can also mean becoming. It's a kind of production. So when we practice, we're, we're producing, we're generating. Bhavana is cultivation, culture. In Chinese, we use this word. This is actually Sino-Vietnamese. It's a Vietnamese form of Chinese. So it was said, the Buddha said, there is something, if you leave it uncultivated, it produces a lot of suffering, brings a lot of suffering. And dear friends, there is something 
that if we know how to cultivate it, it produces a lot of happiness. What is this thing? It is the mind. Our mind, a mind that is not cultivated, can bring a lot of suffering. A mind that is well cultivated, well trained, brings a lot of happiness and joy. So that's why in Chinese, in Sino-Vietnamese, we use this word. It means to cultivate, to train the mind. The French word is practice. The English word is the practice, the cultivation of the mind to produce. We produce joy, we produce happiness. And to cultivate, there have to be seeds. There has to be the soil. And there has to be watering. And we do exactly like someone cultivating the land. We all have seeds of understanding, of love, of compassion, of wisdom in us. And we also have seeds of anger and despair. So it's up to us to choose. We want to cultivate only the good things like understanding, love, And we have spoken about happiness as a product of cultivation. Happiness is made from two factors, two ingredients, understanding and love. The kingdom of God should be a place where there is plenty of understanding and of love. And in the kingdom of God, there are people who know how to cultivate understanding and love. And that's my definition of the kingdom of God. And with what? with many elements, and among those elements used for cultivating understanding and love, there is the element suffering. So in the kingdom of God, there are women and men who know very well how to make use of suffering in order to cultivate happiness, understanding, and compassion. Like in Plum Village, just as we cultivate lotus flowers and we make good use of the mud to grow lotus flowers, without the mud there is no lotus. So we're not afraid of the mud, we're not afraid of suffering. We want to learn how to make use skillfully flexibly of that suffering that's a little bit everywhere. There's plenty of suffering around already. We don't need to create extra. <coughs> There's really more than enough for us 
to be able to create understanding and love. In us there is a seed of mindfulness. A seed of concentration, a seed of wisdom. Mindfulness is the energy In Sanskrit, it's called smriti, and in Sino-Vietnamese, it's called niem. Mindfulness is that energy that allows us to be aware of what's going on in our body, in our feelings, in our perceptions. Mindfulness is an energy that helps us to establish ourselves in the present moment so as to be able to get in touch with true life and its wonders. That is a simple enough definition of mindfulness. And each one of us possesses that seed of mindfulness in us. It's there. When you drink your tea, you can choose to drink your tea in mindfulness. You're concentrated on the tea. You're aware that you're there, and you're aware that the tea is there. And things become real. The fact of drinking the tea proves that life is possible, joy is possible, happiness is possible, and we can wash our hands in mindfulness. We can drink our tea in mindfulness. We can prepare our breakfast in mindfulness. We can brush our teeth in mindfulness. And a practitioner can generate the energy of mindfulness all day long. We're there in the present moment, and we do everything with the energy of mindfulness. That's the practice. Living in mindfulness is an art of making life real, true, and deep. Mindfulness allows us to live deeply every moment of our life. Every moment given us to live, we can live it deeply. And that brings happiness. Mindfulness is also the carrier, the bearer of another energy. And that energy is called concentration.
in Sanskrit it's called samadhi. As we are mindful of what is there, we are concentrating on that. So we know that the energy of mindfulness is the carrier, the bearer of concentration. And concentration allows us to be with what is there completely, deeply. For example, when you're drinking your tea, and if you have mindfulness, and if you have concentration, you really drink your tea. You are concentrated on your tea. And those moments of drinking tea are moments of life that can be very deep. And concentration and mindfulness are both carrying a third energy, which is called insight, right view, insight. In Sanskrit, it's prajna. Insight is a kind of knowing, kind of wisdom that has the power to liberate us. Liberate us from anger, from illusion, despair, etc. And the aim of the practice is to live our life deeply and to liberate ourselves from afflictions like anger, delusion, jealousy, despair. These are energies. These three energies of mindfulness, concentration, and insight are generated by the practice of each person. And it produces what we can call kind of holiness. When we call the Pope or the Dalai Lama His Holiness. What are we saying? What is holiness? It's an energy. And in the practice, we can very well recognize that holiness in terms of mindfulness, concentration, and insight. And every one of us possesses the seeds of holiness in us. And if we know how to walk, if we know how to breathe, to eat, to brush our teeth, we can generate that energy of holiness. So holiness is in you. I can call you your holiness. It's very clear. Holiness is not something abstract. It's very clear. If you are inhabited, imbued with the energy of mindfulness, then the holiness is also there in you. When you drink your tea in mindfulness, in concentration, we can see 
that you are holy. Holiness is there. So bhavana is the practice. that can practice the energy, that can generate the energy of holiness, produced by the energies of mindfulness, concentration, and insight. And we don't have to wait months and years to observe, to realize, to see the effects of the practice. Just a few minutes can already bring fruits of the practice. If you breathe in and you bring your attention truly to your breath, you become more free right away. Free of the past, of the future, your projects, because now you are only with your in-breath. And you can enjoy your in-breath. And that insight can come very quickly because you're breathing in mindfully. You can realize that you're still alive. Breathing in, I know I'm alive. To be still alive, it's a miracle. In fact, it is the greatest of miracles to be here, alive, taking steps on this magnificent planet, it's already a miracle. And we only need two or three seconds to touch this miracle, the miracle of being alive, the miracle of walking on Earth. The miracle is not to walk in the air or on fire, but to walk on earth, to really walk on earth. And just a few seconds are sufficient to touch that miracle of being alive and walking on this earth. And then happiness is possible immediately. We don't have to run towards the future to seek after happiness and joy. Joy and happiness are possible, even in this very, very moment. So the practice consists of watering these good seeds that are in us of mindfulness, concentration, and insight. In the Buddhist tradition, we call these energies the Buddha nature. Every one of us has Buddha nature. We can become a Buddha. The Buddha is someone who is inhabited by the energy of mindfulness, of concentration, and of insight. That's why such a person has a lot of freedom a lot of compassion and a lot of love thanks to these three energies of mindfulness, concentration, and insight. So the practice consists of generating these three energies in our daily life. 
We learn to cook, to wash the dishes, to water the vegetable garden, to drive our car in a way that allows those three energies to be generated at the same time. This is an art, the art of living mindfully. And these miracles can be produced immediately. When you breathe in, you bring your mind back to your body, and when the body and the mind are together, you are established in the present moment. You're there. You are real. You become something very real. When we speak of love, we may ask ourselves, what is love? How do we love? In the light of the practice, to love is to be there for the person you love. Being there. How can you love if you're not there? So to love is to be there. But being there is a practice. Because in daily life, our body may be here and our mind may be elsewhere. We're dispersed. We're not really there for ourselves or for the one we love. So to be there is a practice. And to do it, we can use methods proposed by the Buddha, for example, taking a step in mindfulness. When you take a step in mindfulness, you concentrate on that step, and that step brings you back to the present moment. With that step, you touch the present moment with the wonders of life in it. And that requires just a couple of seconds, one or two seconds, because that step has been taken in mindfulness. I walk. I know I'm walking. I breathe in, and I'm aware that I'm taking that step. You produce your true presence. When you breathe in, in mindfulness, it also brings you back to the present moment to become anchored in the present moment. So to be there, being there, is a practice the greatest gift that you can ever offer your loved ones. What is it? It's not something you buy in the supermarket. It's your presence. To love is to offer the other person your presence. And you can improve the quality 
of your presence with this practice. In Plum Village, we have the practice of pebble meditation for the children, but the adults really like that practice too. Each person has four pebbles in a little bag. And when we do that meditation, pebble meditation, we use those four pebbles. The first pebble is, uh, the, it represents the flower. We take that pebble out with our two fingers. We look at it mindfully and we say, first pebble, you represent a flower. Put that first pebble on your left hand, and you breathe. Breathing in, I see myself as a flower. Breathing out. I feel fresh as a flower. The in-breath and the out-breath that you're taking allow you to recover your flowerness, the flowerness that's in you. Every person is born as a flower. Just look at a child. A child is a real flower in the garden of humanity. We can look at the face of the child, that's a true flower. Look at the eyes, that's a flower. The little hand, it's a flower. A child is beautiful when he sleeps, beautiful when she plays. So the, the human person by nature is a flower. But if we allow ourselves to be overwhelmed by anger, by despair, by confusion, we lose our flowerness, our freshness. We lose our beauty, our freshness. So meditating on our flowerness allows us to recover that freshness, that beauty. You need that freshness and that beauty in order to have it to offer to your loved ones. So this meditation, flower, fresh, can help us to restore that beauty and that freshness, breathing in. I see myself as a flower. I don't have to just imagine this. I was born as a flower in the Garden of Humanity. I may have lost a little bit of my flowerness, but with this practice I can recover that beauty, that flowerness. <coughs> Breathing in, I see myself as a flower. Breathing out, I feel fresh. 
three times we breathe in and out like that. And you can recover your beauty and your freshness. So then you put down the first pebble, and then the second pebble symbolizes a mountain. A mountain is something stable and solid. Stability. Without solidity, stability, other people cannot count on us. So with this practice, we can recover our stability, our solidity. Breathing in, I see myself as a mountain. Breathing out, I feel solid, stable. That is to recover our stability, our solidity. The third pebble is still water. Still water can reflect the blue sky, the clouds, the mountaintops. When we are calm, when we are at peace, we are pleasant. And things are not distorted by our mind. Our mind is calm and we are not the victims of wrong perceptions. We don't distort things when we're calm. So, this meditation on still water helps us to recover our calmness, our peace. That is part of our worth, calmness, tranquility, and peace in us. Breathing in, I see myself as still water. Breathing out, I reflect things just as they are. There's no distortion. And the fourth pebble represents space, freedom. Breathing in, I see myself as space. Breathing out, I feel free. Now, we're not speaking of political freedom. We're speaking of freedom from our afflictions, like greed, anger, jealousy, despair. And it's possible to let go of those things and have more space in our heart and all around us. <coughs> when you're making a flower arrangement, you don't need a lot of flowers. Just a few, three or four, can be enough because each flower needs to have enough space around it to radiate its beauty. And the human person also needs space in its heart, in our heart to be happy. 
We also need space around us. So you can offer your loved ones a little bit of space, some freedom. These are things that we need to have. We need to have, have touched them ourselves in order to be able to offer them. And none of these things can be purchased in the supermarket. We have to produce them. Freshness, stability, peace, and freedom. All of these things are cultivated with the practice. And when you have elements like that in you, your presence is something wonderful. It is the most beautiful gift that you can offer to the one you love. Before going towards him or her, you may like to practice a few minutes of mindful breathing. Breathing in, I see myself as a flower. Breathing out, I feel fresh and beautiful. Breathing in, I see myself as a mountain. Breathing out, I feel solid, reliable. Breathing in, I see myself as still water. Breathing out, I feel peaceful. Breathing in, I see myself as space. Breathing out, I feel free. And you may go to the one you love, look into his or her eyes, and say this mantra in English. Darling, I'm here for you. And the offering, the gift you make to your loved one is your own presence your pleasant, beautiful presence, beauty, freshness, solidity, peace, freedom. So all of that is cultivated. Bhavana is cultivation. Even if you have millions of dollars, you cannot buy these things. They must be cultivated through the practice. And you have the seeds in you. If you know how to water those seeds, these products will be yours. And you can make use of them as an offering for the ones you love. So the practice consists of generating your own presence for yourself. If you're there for yourself, you can take good care of your body, you can take good care of your feelings, you can take care of your perceptions. Your presence is for yourself first. And when you're really there,
in good shape physically and mentally, you can offer that presence to the one you love. The mantra is easy to pronounce, but you have to have the concentration and the mindfulness. Deeply inhabited by mindfulness and concentration, you can address yourself to him or her and pronounce these sacred words. My dear, I am here for you. It's the most beautiful gift we can make to someone we love. And we don't have to recite this mantra in Sanskrit or in Tibetan. We can recite it. We can say it in English. And you can also say it over the cell phone. The other person is in their office or somewhere. But you can practice the first mantra. Hello, darling. You know something? I'm here for you. And the effect is immediate. It makes you happy and it makes the other person happy right away. That's the practice. That's bhavana. These are simple things, easy to do. And we can do it the whole day for ourselves and for the other person. When you're there, you can offer your presence to the people you love and you can do something else equally important. You can recognize their presence. You have your presence and when you're really there, you are also in a position to recognize their presence. To be loved, what does that mean? To be loved means to be recognized as existing. If the person you love is completely oblivious to your existence, he's driving the car, you're sitting there right next to him, but he's completely unaware of your presence. That person is thinking of everything but you. You don't feel loved. <laughs> to love is to embrace the other person with the energy of mindfulness. So even when you're driving your car, you can practice the second mantra. Darling, you know something? I know that you're there, and I'm very happy. So the second mantra is for recognizing the presence of the other person as something that's precious to you. Darling, I know you're there, and I'm so happy. And happiness will be there right away. I guarantee if you pronounce this mantra with mindfulness, with concentration, 
that will produce a miracle right away. And you can even do it with your cell phone. You can send an email with this mantra in it. My dear, I know you're there. And I'm very happy. So the practice bears fruits immediately. We don't have to wait eight months or two years. we have the practice of the five mindfulness trainings. The five mindfulness trainings are a very concrete expression of the practice of mindfulness. To be able to produce true happiness, to be able to live in true love, to be able to protect life, and to save our planet, to be able to realize physical and mental health. These are very concrete practices. But the five mindfulness trainings are based on a wisdom, on an insight. We cannot understand the five mindfulness trainings unless we know this basis of insight that is the foundation of the practice. The method of the Buddha begins with recognizing suffering, ill-being. Suffering. There is suffering in us. There is suffering in the world. Suffering of our parents, our ancestors. There is suffering in future generations. We need to recognize that suffering. 
We need to try to understand that suffering in order to be able to make use of it. So the first noble truth is ill-being, and the second noble truth is the roots of ill-being, the nature of ill-being. That's why we should always come back to ourselves to be able to recognize and embrace ill-being, listen deeply to ill-being, to be able to understand the nature of that ill-being. The Buddha said this, what has come to be? What has established itself? Here we're talking about the suffering. Such as a depression, an illness. What has come to be if we can look into the depth of its nature and identified the source of food that has brought it into being, we are already on the path of emancipation, of liberation. It means that if we look deeply into the same as the, is true with well-being, if we look deeply into the nature of well-being, we can see the food of well-being and we are already on the path of liberation. So if we look into the first noble truth of suffering and we direct our deep look into the ill-being, we direct our concentration into ill-being we will find the roots of that ill-being and we get the understanding that will allow understanding and love to spring forth. <clears throat> what has come into being, if we can look deeply into its nature, and identify the sources of food that have brought it about, we are already on the path of liberation. The nature of ill-being, that means looking into the sources of food. Love also requires food. If we want to maintain love, we need to feed it correctly. If we don't know how to nourish love, it will die. Depression is the same. Anger also. These are forms of ill-being. 
if we look deeply into depression, if we look into anger, we can see the food that has brought those things into being, the sources of food. The Buddha said that nothing can survive without food. So love, joy, need food, depression, anger also need food to be able to continue. So if your anger is there all the time, it's because you continue to feed your anger. So we need to look deeply to identify the source of food of your anger or your depression. If your depression persists, it's because you continue to nourish that depression. And the third noble truth is the possibility of ceasing ill-being, putting a stop to ill-being. We call it cessation, putting an end to ill-being. Let's suppose ill-being is here in the form of a depression. And we want our depression to stop. The Buddha said that is possible if we know how to cut the source of food. the depression will die because nothing can continue without food. If your depression keeps going on, it's because every day you are serving food to it. We need to look uh, It's because you continue to look at to read, to consume, those kinds of things. When you see the food that has led to that depression, then you can cut that source of food. Your depression will die quickly. So to be able to access that cessation of ill-being, we need the fourth noble truth, and that is the, the way, the path. leading to the cessation of ill-being. And the five mindfulness trainings are a very concrete expression of this path that leads to the cessation of ill-being. So if you practice, if you live according to the five mindfulness trainings, ill-being will die. That includes your depression. In 
this retreat, we will have presentation and discussion about the five mindfulness trainings, and that's why I want to prepare you for that. As I've already said, the five mindfulness trainings represent this noble path. And the basis is right view. Right view. Insight. Insight is the third of the energies we were speaking about earlier. The first was mindfulness, the second was concentration. So the third is insight. That insight is the foundation of all practice. With this right view, with this insight, you're able to practice right thinking. What is right thinking? Right thinking is thinking that is free of discrimination, of dualism, of fear, hatred, anger. Thinking that is characterized by understanding and compassion. This kind of thought has the capacity to nourish and to heal. And this right thinking needs to be based on right view in order to be truly right thinking. Because we produce thoughts and thoughts, hundreds of thoughts every day. And there are many thoughts that are not right thinking. They may be characterized by anger, by discrimination, by fear, by despair. And it's not good for us or for the world. When we produce a thought full of hatred, of despair, we destroy our body and mind, and we destroy the world with that hatred with that despair, a thought of hatred, of despair, can lead someone to suicide. So the power of thinking is amazing, and we need to know the way to produce thinking that's in line with right view, right thinking, thinking without discrimination. And that's why meditation is really important. A real ethic has to be based on the insight that corresponds to reality, 
And that's why we need to practice meditation in order to look deeply into the heart of reality. Yesterday we already spoke about interbeing. Right view is the insight that we call interbeing. The word interbeing, you won't find it yet in the Webster's or the LaRousse Dictionary, but I hope it will get in there soon. We can start with the scientist Lavoisier. He's a French scientist who said, nothing is created. Nothing is lost. Everything is in transformation. Everything transforms. That is a true insight into reality. And this was a scientist who said this. It was not a Buddhist meditation practitioner. Scientists also practice looking deeply. It's a kind of meditation directed at matter. They have acquired that wisdom. There is no birth. There is no death. Everything is impermanent. Let's talk again about that cloud floating in the sky. The nature of the cloud is the nature of no birth and no death. In our head, birth means from nothing we become something. From no one we become someone. From nothingness, from non-being, we pass into being. That's the way we tend to think about this. But that way of thinking is not correct. It's not in accord with the wisdom of interbeing. Suppose we draw a line here, representing time, from left to right. And let's say we take a point here on the line. We'll call it the moment of birth. There are two kinds of truth. Relative truth and the ultimate truth. Uh, 
in the relative dimension there is birth. And as there is birth, then there must also be death. So we're born at this point, and we die at this other point. So according to our way of thinking, before the point B of birth, we belong to non-being. You didn't exist before point B, and then you start to exist only from point B, the birth. And that segment B, D, from birth to death, we call it being. And then when you get to point D, you pass back into non-being again. So you only exist from B to D. But if we look deeply into a cloud, we see that that isn't true. A cloud has not passed from non-being into being. Before manifesting as a cloud, the cloud has been something, something else. Water in the ocean, heat, produced by the sun, these kinds of things. Water vapor, a little bit everywhere, even right here in this meditation hall. So we cannot say that the cloud begins here, at this point B. There is no birth. There's only a continuation. So the cloud has not passed from non-being into being. So the notion of birth is a false notion. And the very same thing was said by a scientist, nothing is created, there is no birth. And that applies to all of us, the moment of conception, itself is also not a true beginning, because before that conception, you were already there, part of you in your dad, and a part in your mom. So the moment of conception is also a moment of continuation. Can a cloud die? Can a cloud pass? From the realm of being into the realm of non-being? No, a cloud can never die. It can become rain. It can become hail or snow. Tea? Coffee? But a cloud cannot become nothing. A cloud cannot pass from being into non-being. So its nature is the nature of no birth and no death. The scientist Lavoisier said, there is no birth, there is no death. Effectively, that's what he said. 
everything transforms. And the Buddha said also, there is no birth, there is no death. Things are impermanent, transforming continuously. Only in the Buddha's teaching there's another thing that helps us to see more clearly And as I see that Mr. Lavoisier is still there, here in us, in me, in the French people, but also in me, he lives in me. I am a continuation of Lavoisier. So I want to add something to complete this wisdom. Nothing has a self-nature. Nothing exists on its own. So if we add this, I am sure that Lavoisier agrees with me because this part is already contained in the three foregoing declarations that Lavoisier made. Nothing has a separate self. It, nothing has its own existence by itself. It goes together with nothing is created, nothing is lost, everything transforms. This flower manifests as a wonder. It belongs to the kingdom of God just as you and I do. This flower does not have its own existence. The flower is made solely of non-flower elements, a cloud, the sun, the earth, minerals, the gardener, and all those things. If we look deeply, we see the whole cosmos has conspired to help this wonder to manifest. The flower cannot exist by itself. The flower has to coexist with the entire cosmos. Without the non-flower elements, the flower cannot be. The flower cannot exist by itself. It has to coexist with all the cosmos. If we remove the non-flower elements from the flower, the flower will no longer be there. So nothing has its own separate existence. When we look into the flower, we see only non-flower elements. So instead of saying, we should say, inter-be. The flower cannot just be by itself. It has to inter-be 
with the whole cosmos, and the same is true with all of us. If we try to take out our parents, our ancestors, culture, food, there is no more us. So nothing has its own separate existence. So we can make use of French culture, French wisdom, to create, to generate right view. And with that right view, the mystery of interbeing, there's no more discrimination, there's no more enemy. Suppose we're talking about the left and the right. The Socialist Party, the Front National, that's the far right-wing party of France. We just had one round of presidential elections about a week ago here. We know that the right depends on the left to be. Without the left, there is no right. And the right is also needed by the left to exist. The right and the left, in terms of interbeing, are not enemies. Each one depends on the other to manifest. The left is in the right, and the right is in the left. Suppose I ask someone, one of you, to take this left away from here, take it up to Paris, and I will keep the right down here. To take it to Marseille, it's not possible. The left and the right inter-are. We cannot separate these two things. We cannot tear the right off of the left. We can't remove the left from the right. They're not enemies. They are in each other. In modern science, we speak of the explicit order and the implicit order. David Bohm, B-O-H-M. Initially, we see things existing outside of each other. The flower is outside of the table. It's separate from the table. The table is separate from the human. The table is just the table. The flower is just the flower. And the person is just the person. These things exist outside of, separately from each other. That's what we refer to as the explicit order. But if we look deeply, we see the whole cosmos in the flower. We see the whole cosmos in the table. We see the whole cosmos in that person. This is what we call the implicit order. If we look in the one, we see the all. 
and we touch the nature of interbeing, there is no more discrimination. There is no more dualism. When we look into the lotus, we see the mud. We know that without the mud, there is no lotus. With that insight, there's no more hatred, there's no more separation, there's no more discrimination. Suffering and happiness also enter our. To produce happiness, we need suffering. If we don't know how to take care of happiness, then we generate suffering. So these things are in each other. Things are connected and they inter-are. This is the insight of interbeing. And it is just as easily expressed in scientific terms. Nothing is created, nothing is lost, everything transforms, nothing has its own existence. And meditation is for touching the nature of interbeing. And if you have the insight, the wisdom of interbeing, the thoughts that you produce are right thinking. They're in line with understanding, with love, with non-discrimination. If you can produce a thought of non-discrimination, a thought of understanding and of love, you begin to heal yourself, body and mind, and you also begin to heal the world. A thought, a thought of interbeing, a thought characterized by the wisdom of interbeing. There are thoughts characterized by discrimination and duality. I think that politicians should also meditate to see themselves in one another. The left should look deeply into the right to see the fear, the discrimination, and if we can understand the right, we can help the members of the right to transform. If we act from the basis of fear, we will destroy ourselves and we will destroy other people. So when you look at the right in this way, you no longer feel anger discrimination. You see, there are things that you can contribute to help the right to evolve. And if the right has wisdom, if the right can practice looking deeply into the left, the right can also offer suggestions to improve the quality of thinking and action on the part of the left, etc. So just as the 
left and right side of a piece of paper sustain one another and are not enemies. The lotus is not the enemy of the mud, and the mud is not the enemy of the lotus flower. Suffering is not the enemy of happiness, and we can very well make use of suffering in order to produce happiness, and that is the insight of interbeing. We're no longer afraid of suffering. So, a thought of love, a thought of compassion, a thought of non-discrimination can nourish and heal the world and ourselves. A good practitioner should be able to produce these kinds of thoughts every day to heal and nourish ourselves, because this kind of thinking is actually an enormous energy. And as nothing is ever lost, the thoughts that you have produced continue. They never die. That thinking is your continuation. The problem may arise if yesterday I produced a thought that was not worthy of me, a thought of anger, discrimination, the desire to punish. What can I do about it today? Because I have already produced that thought, and it's a continuation of me that's still there, and nothing is lost. My thought is my continuation. So anchored in the present moment, you can breathe in, and you produce another thought of the opposite and the kind. This time you produce a thought of non-discrimination, of compassion. And if you manage to produce this kind of a thought, it can catch up to the thought of yesterday and neutralize it right away. We do that in the present moment. We neutralize that negative thought because the nature of thinking is non-local. And then you can ensure a more beautiful continuation because your thoughts are your continuation into the future. Nothing is lost. A gift. This is interbeing. Basing on right view, the inside of interbeing, you can also practice on. You can also practice right speech. 
right speech. Right speech based on right view is speech without discrimination. Speech that contains understanding, love, and compassion. You're writing a letter. You're talking on the phone. You're addressing another person. You use right speech because what you say contains understanding and love and it does you good right away. Your physical and your mental health are very connected to your speaking. If you say something compassionate, you can feel it in your body and in your mind and the person listening to you also will receive that healing and then you through right speech you can heal the world, heal yourself. We can bring about reconciliation and reestablish communication in the family and in society. We speak of the Noble Eightfold Path leading to the cessation of ill-being. That's the noble truth. And so the fourth element now of this Eightfold Path is right action. What you do with your physical body to rescue, to save, to protect life, that's right action. Because there's no discrimination, there's no hatred, there's no dualism. That's why the action of your body has the power only of protecting, helping, saving. Rescuing thought, speech, action. These are these are actions that we produce every day. They are things that continue us into the future. When this body disintegrates, we still continue. We are not only this body, because with this body, with this mind, 
We produce every day in terms of thoughts, speech, and physical acts, and that's what continues us into the future, even if we no longer see. That cloud in the sky, the cloud is still there in the form of rain, of hail, of snow. We continue always, and nothing is lost. So you may think that with the disintegration of this body, we're no longer here. That is a wrong perception. That is that is not right view, not right thinking. Nothing is lost. Another Frenchman, his name was Jean-Paul Sartre, he said something very close to the teaching of the Buddha. He said, human beings are the sum of their acts. Man is the sum of his acts. What is a human being? A human being is the sum of their actions. Each one of us is the sum of our actions. An action can be seen in three forms, thought, speech, and physical act. Everything we produce in terms of thought, speech, and physical actions, those are the worth of a person, the value. Like an orange tree in the courtyard, an orange tree produces leaves, flowers, and oranges, orange fruits. Those are the continuation of the orange tree. We people, we produce thoughts, speech, and physical acts that represents us. That is our continuation. So we continue always. Nothing is lost. And as a practitioner, we know how to continue in beauty into the future. We know how to produce right thoughts, thoughts of beauty and love. We know how to produce right speech every day. We have many opportunities to do it many times a day. we can generate right action as our continuation. So the five mindfulness trainings represent the path leading to the cessation of ill-being. And the trainings do that in very concrete terms. livelihood, 
right livelihood, earning our living in a way that always goes with the inside of interbeing. We don't destroy the environment. We give other people and other species the chance to live, and that is also part of the five mindfulness trainings. And then, right diligence, also called right effort. It means a continuous practice every day. How we continue our practice. And after right diligence, there's right mindfulness. And right concentration. Mindfulness, concentration, which lead back to the insight. So this is called the Noble Eightfold Path, the path leading to the cessation of ill-being, leading to well-being. And tomorrow we will talk a little bit about right diligence. I hope we'll be able to have walking meditation. <laughs>